First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. You're tuned into what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Earth. It is, of course, for Triple Z, be it on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM, digital devices such as DAB or smart speaker, listening via the Community Radio Plus app, or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4zzz.org.au. And of course, you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the Engineers On Demand feature also found at that URL. We also now have a weekly podcast of the show for your listening pleasure, a condensed version of the show without the music which my mum prefers. Just search for our show name, which is, of course, No Idea, spelt with a K, your weekly dose of science. And joining me today, hopefully, eventually, will be V and Izzy. Gabe and Peter are going to see Taylor Swift, so they'll be in Melbourne, I think. And poor Jay's a bit sick at the moment, so... Hopefully my son will tune in for the motor app. So we'll talk about the motor app and our love of all things motorsport because it is Valentine's Day. So it'll be a love letter to motorsport today. For those unfamiliar with the show, we generally start the show with some weird science, then move on to some marine science, and then my personal favourite, as I said, motor app. But basically it's anything that's piqued our interest in the science world during the last month and we round out the show with some space news and it's time for a bit of this. Now since Gabe's gone to see Tay-Tay down in Melbourne, he sent in an article which was actually my weird science for this week but he's a, a far better a writer than I am so we'll read from his script. He's entitled it, uh, The Love, The Voice. So, it is the day of loving or hating or feeling ambivalent about significant others in our lives. But regardless of what relationship or situationship you've gotten yourself into this Valentine's Day, some scientists have put out new research showing how you could make yourself more attractive to a partner. This comes out of Penn State University, which has a QS ranking of 83 and was published in the journal Psychological Science. They wanted to understand what features give people higher social status. Specifically, they looked at our voice. The researchers took audio clips of two males and two females talking. They then edited the recordings so they had three versions of each of the four people. It was two people. But oh, four people, yeah. One, one recording was high-pitched, one low pitch and one the average pitch of males or females. Those clips were then played for over 3,000 people 
across 22 countries, including New Zealand, but not Australia. They asked those 3,000 people which of the voices they heard sounded more prestigious, more formidable, more flirtatious, and more attractive. And a note here that the design of this study seems a bit too Darwinian. The study kind of fails the scientific equivalent of the Bechdel test from the film world, which measures the representation of women in film and other fiction. When males were played clips of other males, they were asked questions about respect and prestige. When males and females were played recordings of the opposite sex, they were asked questions about attraction and relationships. When females were played recordings of other females, they were asked about how flirty or attractive to men the voice was. I also couldn't see if they controlled the differences between people being straight or queer. So not great study uh, inclusiveness, uh, but let's just focus on the males being asked about females and females being asked about males because at least there was some consistency about which questions were asked here. One of those questions was coming right out and asking people which of the voices they preferred to have a long-term hookup. Both males and females in the study reported the recordings which had been edited to be a lower pitch was their preference. That lower pitch voice recording of males was also associated with formidable <laughs> to be very strong and high social status. Formidable. But when males were asked about which female voice they would prefer to have a short-term relationship with, the voice recordings edited to be higher pitch came out as the most attractive pick. Those trends held true across different countries, cultures and societies, indicating that the pitch of our voice is something we've evolutionary wired to pick up on and use to make judgments about people. The catch was that these trends were highest in societies where people had limited interactions with people outside of their small inner community. People who came from societies with lots of interactions with strangers seem to put less emphasis into the pitch of someone's voice. That's probably because the people who don't get out and mingle with strangers much need to rely on things that are easy to detect, like the pitch of someone's voice. People who interact with lots of strangers might be better at using other methods to assess someone's social status, attractiveness, and all that sort of stuff. So if you're looking for an easy way to sound more attractive to long-term partners, this Valentine's, just drop your voice down by a few notes. Thanks, Gabe. I can't talk about the songs. He's cut me off. Because yeah. if I talk about it yeah. now, then it doesn't work with the podcast because they have to cut this bit out about the <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Max! <laughs> Don't you think I know that? Right of reply. You just, you make it more work for the poor fella. <laughs> we'll let Toby sort it out. <sighs> what a legend, Toby. I'm what so sorry. Yes, you are. <laughs> 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 you tune into to 4ZZZ. The show is no idea. I've been joined by... V and Izzy, welcome. Good morning. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> to No Idea. Thanks for joining me. I think we should hear something from Gay. What do you reckon? We've got a pre-record. Mm-hmm. It was actually played on the 17th of January this year, so it's fairly recent. But I thought it fitted the theme of the Valentines, and it's about loving prairie voles and the need for dopamine and how they separated them and they got a bit sad. What can Central Northern American rodents teach us about love? Let's crack this open. The prairie vole is one of science's favourite lab rats. Found in the grasslands right up through the centre and north of the USA and Canada, prairie voles look like little brown rat hamster rodenty things. They're also 
monogamous, one of the special few mammals alongside humans that pick one partner and settle down with them for life. And once they're bonded, like us, they start coordinating their behavior as a couple, which all means scientists love screwing around with them in labs to see what their bonds drive them to do, to understand how mammals love. In the past, lab experiments have found prairie voles show something along the lines of empathy and can learn to help other prairie voles when they're in distress. In one experiment, they separated lifelong partners, gave one of them an electric shock while they were apart, and then put them back together again and saw that the one that didn't get zapped started licking and grooming its stressed mate. And if you think that's a lot, wait till the end of this story. These peculiar prairie vole researchers have, over the years, been narrowing in on something. They're trying to understand the role of chemicals like hormones in this bonding. They've already found that things like oxytocin and vasopressin help prairie voles bond with each other. But this time, they wanted to know about a different hormone. They wanted to know how dopamine, the pleasure chemical, changes how motivated prairie voles are to get back to their bonded mate. We wanted to revisit the question of what is the role of dopamine in motivating an individual to seek out their partner when they've been away for a while. In other words, does dopamine have a part to play in why absence makes the heart grow fonder? That was Associate Professor Zoe Donaldson before, by the way, a behavioral neuroscientist at the University of Colorado Boulder. QS ranking 264. She's one of the authors of this latest study. In a natural context, dopamine is sort of doing the same things as driving us to seek out what we need. And it's really important in the context of forming bonds because it's integral for that pleasurable feeling that we get when we think about our loved ones. So dopamine triggers feelings of pleasure, including in ways that motivate us and help us to learn. But does the dopamine we experience with a partner we're closely bonded to make us more motivated to get back to them when we're apart? To test that, the researchers put two prairie voles in two parts of a fish tank looking enclosure. Between them was either a door with a lever or a fence that they had to climb over. The way that we asked a vole if they wanted to reunite with their partner is that we asked them to work to do so. In one test, we actually had voles climbing over barriers in order to get back to their pair bonded partner. They also had fiber optic sensors attached to them that could detect dopamine in the vole's brains. The region of the brain they hooked into was a region that we also have in our own brains. When the voles opened the door or climbed the fence and saw a random vole on the other side, they only had a small flash in that dopamine sensor. But when they got through that door and over the fence and saw their bonded partner, they lit up like a glow stick. That dopamine kept flowing as they snuggled and sniffed each other once reunited. That means dopamine is probably really important for prairie voles and possibly also humans for motivating them to seek out their partner. The brain wants that dopamine hit it's gonna get when we find them. What we have found essentially is a biological signature of desire. Why we want to be with some people more than we want to be with other people is quite literally a readout of dopamine release in your nucleus accumbens. I mean, it's just cute, right? Like dopamine hits push prairie voles to get back to their special someone. But what dopamine giveth, dopamine can also take away. The researchers did another test, and this is the bit I told you to brace for. This time, they separated bonded pairs of prairie voles for four weeks. Prairie voles only live for about a year or two at a time. Four weeks is a life-changing amount of time. By that time in the wild, they probably would have found someone new they don't have the lifespan to wait around long distance for a month. 
Then, after those four weeks, the pairs got reunited. According to the researchers, the pairs remembered each other, but the dopamine hit in their brain had almost vanished. The dopamine surge of pleasure and motivation has just dissipated back down to the same they'd get for any other prairie vole. Their drive to be with each other was gone. It's possibly something related to them being able to form a new bond with a partner in the wild when their original partner dies, not just gets stolen by an underpaid grad student in some lab in Colorado. The good news though, according to the researchers, is this could mean that humans have some ability to get over a breakup if we can do the sort of unhooking of dopamine that these prairie voles can. Dopamine could also be an underlying component of why certain people may struggle to overcome loss or who have trouble forming deep connections in the first place. But those are some big leaps to make from some slightly abused lab prairie voles, so let's wait for the human trials on those ones. For now, I'll leave you with this. Another way to say this is that our partners, our friends, our close relationships leave a chemical imprint on our brain. And this long-lasting chemical imprint is what helps us to maintain these bonds over time. You tuned into 4 Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Izzy, MV... And generally at this time of the show, we'd like to hear from our friendly neighbourhood marine scientist, Peter, who is also going down to see Tay-Tay in Melbourne, and it's on this weekend. I've been informed now. Mm-hmm. We think. We think. Y- yes. <laughs> we think. I've fact-checked. <laughs> That's right. She's coming to Melbourne. As we trace her aircraft flying to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't cease and desist. Please don't cease and desist. <laughs> and this is entitled... Rip the shark. As your friendly neighbourhood marine scientist, it is my proud duty to introduce you to Rip. Rip the shark. But first, I have to give you a bit of information about shark reproduction. Sharks may all be fish, but that doesn't mean that they have to get down in the same way. I mean, they all have claspers, which are essentially external genitalia, um, and they have internal fertilisation. But once they're fertilised, that's when it really starts to differ. Many fish choose to put their energy into having many, many babies, increasing the chance of survival and succession by basically just having enough that the chances are some will make it. But sharks are different. They, like us, invest a lot of energy into producing a few well-developed young that have much higher chances of survival individually. That's essentially the end of the universal similarities though, because there are various forms of shark reproduction and they are all hella interesting. So. Some sharks are oviparous or egg-laying. Like many other fish, they lay an underdeveloped fetus, complete with life support, wrapped in a tough egg case and fix it to a safe space. Shark eggs are leathery and they can have incredibly odd shapes, like the Port Jackson shark, which lays large spiral-shaped eggs. And to everyone with a uterus, I am genuinely sorry about that last visual there. I don't know how they do it, but I'm very glad that we don't. Despite not spending much, if any, parenting time with the young, oviparous sharks still put a lot of energy into protecting, feeding, and growing their young through their egg sacs. Now, another major type of reproduction is viviparity, or live birth, which, while still uncomfortable, should sound more understandable, as it's what we do. Viviparity is the most advanced method of reproduction, where the baby shark develops inside the mother's body, receiving nutrients and oxygen through an umbilical cord. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, wow, that is exactly like us. Well, not quite, um, because unlike human babies who come out as helpless milk receptacles, sharks have to come out completely and immediately independent. It would be like if you gave birth to an 18-year-old with a house deposit. Amazing. But one of the 
truly strange methods of shark reproduction is oviviviparous, which is kind of as it sounds. It's sort of a midpoint between oviparity and viviparity. The female shark does have eggs, but she does not lay them. She keeps them inside her for an extra layer of protection, giving them the thin membrane of their egg case and the thick meaty shell of the mother. When developed, the baby will then hatch inside the mother, who will then give birth to the live young. And the time between these two events varies. Sometimes they'll hatch and then birth almost immediately, but some pups will wait it out a bit and they'll actually eat some of the unfertilized eggs within the mother, which is kind of creepy, but some go even further. Sand tiger pups will actually eat their unhatched siblings in an act called intrauterine cannibalism, which is interesting for us because Rip, the shark that I introduced you to at the start of this, is a sand tiger pup, which is actually a critically endangered species of shark. But he was born in an even more special way, because he was made through artificial insemination, making the process very different, even before fertilization. Essentially, the artificial insemination of a shark involves taking the sperm sample, which is usually frozen, thawing it, and inserting it into the female. And the frozen part is actually kind of important, because it represents the big reason as to why you would actually want to artificially inseminate a shark. After all, it's not really something most regular people would be all too thrilled to do, holding down a slippery tornado with every dentist's favourite chompers just to put some sperm inside them. But by doing this, the researchers are able to inseminate a female shark with the sperm of a shark from the other side of the world, which potentially vastly expands the gene pool of the endangered species. And so, after 10 long months of waiting, Rip finally wriggled his way into this world on May 24th of this year. And we here at No Idea wish him a long, happy and sharky life. I've seen, I haven't, okay, sorry, you got me really excited because I've just seen go, go, like go. a picture of a shark eating them. Yes, yes, that's what I thought as well. <laughs> <laughs> the shark just eating like, fiber mm, optic cable. Fiber <laughs> optic cable. <laughs> <laughs> you tune into 4 Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max Izzy. And V, and we just got a subscriber. Woo! Thank you, Mark from Maruka. What a guy. And if you want to subscribe, you can just go to our website at fourzzz.org.au forward slash support. And you can subscribe your pet if you want it for $20 or your concession for $35. A full for $70. A passionate for $130. Or you can go all the way. And become a super sub and get your name on the wall downstairs for five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Need a last minute Valentine's Day present, babe? We've got you hooked up. That's right. <laughs> and you also go into the running of the monthly prize, which is some indoor wall climbing at uh, nine degrees, I believe. Nine degrees. Oh, there nice. you go. They've got two two places you can mm-hmm, attend. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. membership there. Job done. Date night sorted. Yeah. Nice. So V, you want to take us through with a little story? Yep. Here with a little story, taking Peter's shark science lead. What I've got today is a very exciting development in marine biology. Now, the study was published only recently, I think it was like end of last month, maybe, in the journal Environmental Biology of Fishes, but the discovery itself was actually made in July last year. Now, the relevant team is Carlos Gauner, who is a wildlife filmmaker, and Philip Stearns, a biology doctoral student at the University of California, Riverside, QS ranking. <laughs> oh, University of Cal- California, yeah, Riverside. Riverside, not Berkeley. Uh, so. Oh, okay. Sixty-five. Uh, Sixty-five. 
112. 412. <laughs> oh, I think the Riverside spin yeah. us off. Yeah, yeah we yeah. were optimistic. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so the pair were scanning the waters off a beach on California's central coast near Santa Barbara, if that means anything to you. And they were able to get some drone footage of a very interesting shark. It was unmistakably a great white, judging by the size and shape of its dorsal fin. But this one was a bit different to other great whites that they'd seen. This one was short, thin, and round, maybe only like one and a half meters long, and it was also pure white, which is pretty unusual for a species that's generally grey on top and white on the bottom. Mm. The pair figured that this was likely a great white pup. The size and shape indicated it was only a few hours old, and the pure white colouring, Stern's guest, was actually the intrauterine lining. Since great whites give live birth, apparently the babies, um, you know, in utero, they like feast on their unfertilized embryonic twins, and they also get additional <laughs> nourishment from this nutritious milk-like substance that the mother secretes in utero. Um, so this duo say that you can actually see the shark shedding this embryonic like intrauterine milk layer as it swims in the footage. Now, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because this is possibly the first known sighting of a newborn great white. Nice. Gauna describes the great white birthing habits as one of the holy grails of shark science. Up until now, the closest thing people have found is like deceased pregnant great whites with dead pups inside. Mm. Super sad, not quite the same. Yeah. Um, now, of course, you know, they um, have published the footage online and it's drawn a lot of attention, actually. There are, like, debates in the comments over whether this is actually, um, you know, a great white pup, what they claim it is. Um, and Stearns and Gauner do concede that it's possible the white colouring of the shark is actually a skin condition rather than the intrauterine milk. But even then, it's still a novel discovery, you know, an observation of this kind has never been made mm. before. And they're also fairly confident it's a newborn great white just because they've seen many large likely pregnant adult great whites in the area mm. over the past couple of years. What's also interesting is that the duo were able to film this great white so close to the shore, I think it was only like 300 meters from the beach. Whoa. And many researchers believe that great whites birth out further in the open ocean. So if this footage is what Stearns and Gauner say it is, then it definitely changes some things. I know that kind of sounds a little bit alarming, this baby great white being so close to the beach, but you know, don't let their scary reputation, <laughs> you know, put you off too much. Ultimately, the ocean is their home. They're beautiful, powerful creatures. And as apex predators, they're really, really important for the ecosystem. Mm. And the more we know about them, the better we can manage human-shark interactions. And now, Izzy, the thing I always complain about with science reporting is accessibility. You oh, know, yeah. journals oh, yeah. are, like, always paywall. It's yeah. so, e like, so mm. difficult to get your hands on, you know, papers and data. But the good <laughs> news... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if you're interested in this shark story, you can actually see the footage yourself. It's uploaded on like YouTube or Instagram. You just have to search up Carlos Gauna. That's G A U N A, or his handle, the Malibu Artist. And I can confirm the shark is super cute, oh! super white, super tiny and tubby. A small just a flat baby. white, just a, a baby. small tiny white. Oh my goodness, that's so exciting, V. Yeah. Baby shark. How romantic. Exactly. How romantic. Shark love is shark in the air. love. <laughs> <laughs> is in the air. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you, V. Oh, I'm going to have to pull that up right now. You're tuning into 4 Triple Z. And the show is No Idea with me, Max. Izzy, V. And my son's joined us. Maximilian streamed in because we're going to do a bit of this. Next. 
Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to four triple Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science careers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I won't keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max, and I'm not talking Van Staffen. It's lights out, and away we go. Can I talk about erotica? Sure. It is Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Max. Go crazy. Arguably everyone's favourite F1 driver is now the lead character in a series of erotic novels. Which one? <laughs> the, the first novel is titled Overtake My Heart, colon, Thick Rick Races for Love, and is the first instalment of a 69-part series. Nice. <laughs> Readers are told to strap themselves in for a sizzling, high-octane romance, taking them on a heart-stopping ride filled with passion, speed and heartbreak. The story follows a lady named Emily, who is a smart and independent woman, as she navigates the thrilling and glamorous world of Formula One racing, and tangles with the irresistible, charming playboy, Daniel Ricciardo. Uh, <laughs> the 53-page paperback features such notable lines as she could feel that he was harder than a Pirelli C1 tyre as he crashed into her from behind like she was Max in Baku 2018. Oh, my God. The Are author- you allowed to say that on air? Like, do, do we need, like, a language voice? Jesus. <laughs> the author, Anita Driver, who has a PhD, apparently, is a Formula One enthusiast who has attended every Spanish Grand Prix since 1991. She first learned to love cars when she was struck by one at the age of nine. She currently resides in a flat in New York with her 29 cats, who are all named Bernie Wigglestone. One Australian reviewer noted, if you're looking for a beautiful romance with an epic storyline and amazing writing, this book probably isn't for you. But if you're looking for hilarity and a few great jabs at certain F1 personalities, as well as some hilariously incorrect Australian facts, then you're in the right place. It's bored. (laughs) It's in my cart right now. (laughs) Checking out. (laughs) And so the love affair for Formula One is happening with all the show, uh, all the cars being, um, what do you call it? Launched. Uh, launched, yeah. Yeah, I've seen some very yeah. hot photos of yeah. some of the new the new helmets and the new like models of the cars. Yeah, as well. exactly. Whew. So Haas Williams, Kicksalber, Alpine, V Carb, Aston Martin and Ferrari are all done. And then Mercedes launched today with McLaren and then Red Bull the following day on the fifteenth. Now I thought we should talk about some F one, Formula One bromances. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, Maxie, you want to kick us off with some of the bromances in Formula One? Absolutely. So this is one from the archives from the early 90s with uh, Ayrton Senna and Gerhard Berger. So Senna, obviously the Brazilian three-time world champion and absolute master of Monaco. And uh, if you don't know or care who Gerhard Berger is, uh, just know that Daniel Ricciardo, or as you called him before, Thick Rick, is uh, (laughs) dating his daughter Heidi Berger. So there you go. So Senna and Berger were teammates together at McLaren for the 1990, 91 and 92 seasons. And they had a bit of a bromance going and their love language was undoubtedly that of pranking each other. 
And this was actually encouraged by Ron Dennis, who was the head of McLaren at the time, because he, he felt it would uh, lead to a less toxic relationship than that of Senna and Prost, who had previously been teammates at McLaren. So the earliest prank we know of happened in the lead-up to the 1990 Italian Grand Prix, which was being held at Monza. So Senna just absolutely would not shut up about this new carbon fibre briefcase that he got, you know, describing it as indestructible. Gerhard, my friend, you see my new briefcase? It is indestructible. So Berger eventually got a bit tired of this. So he decided to open the door and throw the uh, carbon fibre briefcase out of the helicopter in which they were flying. <laughs> oh, nice. A little bit of a science experiment, you know. Will it survive? Yeah. <laughs> and Senna's hypothesis was actually incorrect. No, it was correct. Sorry. Yeah. It survived without a scratch. <laughs> Jesus. Fully intact. So he was right to be, you know, praising yeah. it so much, I guess. Now, um, this is also in the 1990 season, and this is uh, at Australia in Adelaide, which uh, was the last race of the season, so there was a bit of uh, revelry, a bit of rowdiness, and um, basically everyone was getting thrown in the pool at this, at this hotel, and uh, not wanting to get his designer clothes wet, Senna retreated to his hotel room. Gerhard was having none of this, so he decided to MacGyver up a hose, which he then attached to a fire hydrant and fed it under the door of Senna's ho- hotel room. So in response, Senna absolutely launched himself out of a window to escape the torrent of water that was piling up. And he woke up basically every other guest in the hotel and he copped a bit of abuse for that. Gerhard, uh, going to inspect his fine work, had a look at Senna's room and said it looked as if a bomb had gone off. (laughs) Now this is Australia as well. This is the next season, 91, end of the season. And uh, Senna had often uh, professed his love for animals and all things nature. So... Gerhard decided it would be appropriate to bring the outdoors indoors. Senna then angrily confronted Berger after having to, quote, catch at least 12 frogs from around his hotel room. Berger helpfully replied, yeah, but did you find the snake? Very nice. So now Senna decided enough was enough. He's finally going to get one back. So this is the next season in Japan. And before a very important dinner, I I guess this must have been a farewell dinner uh, with Honda executives... Uh, he decided that it would be a good idea to fill uh, Gerhard's dress shoes with shaving foam. So then uh, Berger would have to wear joggers with his otherwise formal suit. And now accounts vary as to how uh, Berger retaliated, but uh, allegedly he had the McLaren nutritionist deliver Senna some orange juice uh, before the Japanese Grand Prix as sort of a peace offering. Senna wisely declined... <laughs> <laughs> as Gerhard had laced the juice with, with an absolutely pills. drowsy oh. number of sleeping pills. Yep. Oh, God. Amazing. Yeah. Now, this is the big one. Yeah, go this, on. is the, this is the last one. Yeah, yeah. Gerhard decided it would be funny to deface Senna's passport. Oh, because nice. yeah, okay. basically what would happen is, because Senna was so famous, especially in Europe, he usually wouldn't get his documents checked. It'd just be waved through security. Uh, but on one fateful trip to Argentina, Senna's passport was finally scrutinised. It was discovered that Senna's passport photo had been replaced by what uh, Ron Dennis could only describe as an equivalently sized piece of male genitalia. (laughs) Senna was detained for 24 hours as a result of this. Having had a day to plot his revenge, Senna decided it would be funny to glue all of Gerhard's credit cards together. Very good. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) That's new. And it's interesting that Alonso came out recently and spoke about the only person he truly loved as a teammate. And that was Italian Gia Fisichelli. And it started back in 2005 when they were both driving for Renault. 
And Alonso went on to win that world championship in mm. 2005. So it just shows you, if you're happy with your teammate, you, you know, you can get on. Yep. You know, win the world championship. And they also won the Constructors' Championship, taking it away from previous winner Ferrari, which were on a bit of a roll with their car and Mick Schumacher and all that sort of stuff. Now the Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report. And I just dis- discovered that both their racing numbers is 71, 77. So Bottas has the number 77 yeah. in Formula 1. And Roman Grosjean has the number 77 in IndyCar. Interesting. So we should just call it the number... It's a 77 report. Exactly. And see if Gabe gets the joke next (laughs) week. Nice. (laughs) So Bottas has revealed he has no intention of returning to the Mercedes F1 team, a team where he won some impressive races. He is committed to the Audi experiment when the German manufacturer takes over his current team, which is called Stake F1 or Kick F1 or Stake F1 Team Kick Sauber. (laughs) We're not sure. Meanwhile... They have to take away the stake. They do. Yeah, the Swiss authorities are not happy about a gambling company uh, sponsoring a Formula One team. That's Which is not in registered in Switzerland, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Interesting. Meanwhile, the Phoenix, Roman Grosjean, has been testing his new IndyCar called the JHR 77 Chevrolet. He's yet, this is interesting, he's yet to secure one IndyCar win, victory yet, since joining yeah. the circus in 2021. So hopefully 2024 might be his year for the Swiss slash French driver. How close did he come? He's, he's got lots of seconds. Mm. Just no first. So, yeah. Yeah, amazing. This year might be the year. Is that it for the mudder app? I think it might be. Okay. Mm-hmm. V, nothing? Nothing from me. <laughs> Not this week. This week. <laughs> Not this week. <laughs> Is he? No. You're good? Short and sweet, babe. Good Everyone job. at the station knows... Uh, which shows the most appreciated? Uncancelable. Uncancelable. That's what I love to say about us. <laughs> <laughs> everything we do, everything we say, everything we've ever put online, uncancelable. Yeah. You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea. With me, Max, Izzy, and V. And what do you got for us, Izzy? Sorry, I just got distracted by looking up. We were discussing erotica off air. We uh, were a lot of erotica. Related to the Daniel Ricciardo <laughs> book. And his um, neck. And his his neck muscles. Yeah. If you want to know what we're talking about, go <laughs> listen back. Listen back. Anyway, we're going to talk about this amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. We're going to talk about a new study from the researchers at the Swinburne University of Technology Center for Humans psychopharmaceutical which has made findings in the field of medical cannabis use so Mm -hmm. this is discussing the use of medical cannabis when prescribed for a chronic health condition and how it affects people in a simulated driving environment right so this isn't exactly romantic i think this is just cool so Mm. suck it up whatever it's our show not yours (laughs) a new study conducted made significant findings they found that um the open label study assessed the influence of prescribed medical cannabis on simulated driving performance across 40 patients with a range of chronic health conditions. Participants had their driving ability assessed in a simulator before and after consuming the standard dose of their prescribed medicine. The findings revealed no notable impairment in driving capabilities during a highway driving simulation at 2.5 hours post-consumption, nor was there any residual impairment on driving performance at 5 hours later. Brooke Maining, the paper's lead author, emphasised the study's crucial role in generating evidence on the 
safety and effectiveness of medical cannabis treatment. Our main finding, she quotes, it was the absence of impairment on a simulated highway driving task. Noted that patients consumed their medication as prescribed drove with actually slightly greater consistency in highway driving speed and reported a decrease in the perceived effort required to drive. It's crucial to highlight in this study whilst revealing involves a very small sample and its results applied specifically to patients undergoing stable, long-term medical cannabis treatment for refractory conditions. So this is coming after the um, about studies talking about Australia's medical cannabis boom. So we are seeing a lot more people um, getting access to treatment after it was legalized in 2016 with the most significant uptake occurring in the last 18 months according to the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Swinburne's Dr. Thomas Arkell, who contributed to the paper, stresses the importance of rigorous scientific research to support an increase in medical cannabis prescriptions. All jurisdictions except for patients in Tasmania who have been prescribed medical cannabis containing THC were prohibited for driving, underscoring the relevance of this research in shaping future policies and guidelines for medical cannabis use. So, don't drink and drive, but hey, if you're on that medical cannabis, then maybe you're all fine. <laughs> Good to go. Yeah. Good to go. I thought this is interesting because, completely unrelated, mm. my brother has downloaded a uh, European truck simulator, oh, yeah. and I accidentally incurred 12k in debt by accidentally flipping his truck. <laughs> So, this is my very public apology to my younger brother, Alison. I'm so sorry. He was not happy with me. And Mm. keep in mind, completely sober. (laughs) My head was on the right, on my shoulders. And I managed to impair myself (laughs) and his truck business. You've done the right thing. Public apology. It's it's time for love. And I'm here to set Mm. a public apology as well. I'm sorry. I did it whilst he was at school camp as well. That's messed up. Yeah. Probably came back so excited to like uh, simulate truck driving. Yeah, he was so excited. Yeah. Yeah. deliver his punnet of, uh, I don't know, mm. beans from I- yeah. Edinburgh yeah. to Amsterdam. <laughs> to make up the <laughs> to difference. To make up, yeah. yeah. I've got him. He's oh, like, working. Like a six-hour drive. No, it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I did 120 over a roundabout and flipped it, and he was not happy with me. Look at all those beans. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, goodness. All right. Okay, I've got a question for you. Yes. The latest expedition team on the ISS, the International Space Station, what number expedition do you reckon it is? 30. Oh, I thought you gave for your favourite number. 69. It is. It is? It is. <laughs> Let's do this. No idea. Space news. I'm going to talk about ingenuity. And, of course, I can play this, can't I? I was waiting for always. it. Always. Always. <laughs> I'll drop it down a bit. <laughs> so, apparently, the final resting place of NASA's mini chopper called Ingenuity which got grounded after its 72nd flight on January 18, has a name of sorts, the location. The Ingenuity team has nicknamed the spot Valinor Hills, which also stands for the Blessed Realm, after the fictional location in J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy novels, which include the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And we're talking off air if, if, if you're into that sort of thing. Izzy, V... I haven't seen any of the movies. Like I read said, any of the books. Air, I think that's a prerequisite to For, be on this show. On the science yeah. show, you think? Come on, you yeah. got to yeah. do a twenty-four oh, nice. hour binge at the Lord of the Rings <laughs> films because they right. are that long. Or the Hobbit. Or uh, and the Hobbit. Oh, yeah. No, chuck it on. Come on, <laughs> we can pencil it in. Yeah, yeah we can pencil. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
let's talk about their X59. So this is the plane they're building. It's a prototype, hoping to uh, get a really uh, quiet sonic boom if it's possible. And NASA's uh, has got some environmental data. Uh, they've got put some microphones out, uh, like ten microphones out on the on the grounds in the desert, and they took up their FA-18 and F-15 jets and simulated what the sonic boom should sound like from the X-59 and they did an inverted dive, which was, you know, pretty wow. pretty fun, to, would have been good to watch. Uh, we're hoping that the X-59 will sound no louder than the sound of a car door being closed by a 10-year-old child. I'll put that bit in. <laughs> what? What happened to the X-37A? Well... Mm. Mm. We don't talk about that? Asking the big questions. <laughs> yeah, there's just a red dot on my head. Like <laughs> 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 While we're talking about the X-Planes, the X-37B, it got launched back in December. It's sort of like the secret spy plane, and uh, which goes <laughs> into orbit. Called it. And it went on the SpaceX Falcon Heavy. And hobbyists have been trying to track down its actual orbit. And they reckon it's a highly elliptical, I can't even say that word, orbit, ranging between 323 kilometres up to 40,000 kilometres. The orbit is also inclined at 59.1 degrees to the equator. Space Force has not released any information about the orbit of the X-37B, but it only took hobbyists about six weeks to work it out. So, not so secret after all. And SpaceX, they're awaiting FAA approval for a launch license so they can send up their Starship, the fully reusable package. It's on the, it's ready to go in Texas, but they're just waiting for the launch license. It'll be launch number three, so hopefully it'll happen before the end of Feb. They have also, SpaceX has started uh, a process of deorbiting 100 of their first generation Starlink satellites, citing that they will have to start deorbit deorbiting them now because they may lose contact with them and may not be able to maneuver them into a lower orbit because what you do is you bring them down slow and slow and eventually they burn up in the earth's atmosphere mm. they've got 5,500 satellites up there now so losing yeah. 100 mm. won't prove to be too much of an issue mm. and that is it for the space news this week Nice. Great stuff. Interesting. You're tuning to 4 Triple Z, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Izzy, and V. And it's time that we say goodbye for this week. Thanks, everyone. Anyone want to sign us out? Gabe normally does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh, just before we leave, I just yeah. want to pass on like a little bit of love, some Valentine's love from DJT. Yeah. She couldn't make it in today. We did invite her. Yeah, we did. I got a Valentine's card for her too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've really brought out everything. Yeah, I did all... The worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and DJT just wanted to say to the listeners that, um, yeah, happy Valentine yeah. to everyone. Cool, cool. Happy Valentine. Yeah. Valentine. Valentine. Nice. And what, and what are your plans today? You got Valentine's. You got. Uh, going I got a date. You've got a date. <laughs> <laughs> got a Izzy's got a date. Izzy, nice. Yeah, we're going to Mexican. Mexican? Avoiding the mariachi band <laughs> as much as possible. When's your dinner booking? Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 well With played. the pensioners, come on, yeah, we're in good right. company. Exactly. <laughs> no, what about you guys? No Valentine's Day plans? I might or? cook up something, you think, for my Ooh, wife. Yum. Yeah. I haven't thought about it yet. <laughs> I'm too busy so getting romantic. ready for the show. V? Yeah. Uh, I have a choir rehearsal. I'm going to be a yeah, room right. of like, youth choristers. And really fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it is time for us to say goodbye. So thank you, V, for being here. Thank yeah. you, Max, for organising. And we'll speak to you 
next week. See y'all. Ciao. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. science.